Welcome to episode 6 of the Indie by Design podcast, the show about game design and game designers. In each weekly episode, we sit down with interesting people to talk about them, their work and their outlook on games. The Indie by Design podcast is brought to you by Stace Harmon and John Robertson, writers and creators of the hardback book Independent by Design, Art and Stories of Indie Game Creation, available now from IndieByDesign.net and from Amazon. This episode is hosted by me, Stace Harmon, and features Dean Hall, creator of the DayZ mod and the founder of Rocketworks, the studio behind VR title Out of Ammo and upcoming space-based sim Stationeers. For many people, Dean Hall is synonymous with 2012's free zombie mod DayZ, which he created for Bohemia Interactive's Armour 2 while serving in the armed forces. The startling popularity of that mod led to it being officially acquired by Bohemia and to Hall himself working at the Czech Republic-based development studio on the standalone version of DayZ for two years before leaving to found his own company in his native New Zealand. Rocketworks has since released Out of Ammo, co-developed abandoned title Ion, and is now working on numerous other projects, including space station simulation Stationeers. Known for his outspoken and candid approach to discussing his work, his history and his experiences in the games industry, Dean Hall is also a keen mountaineer, has climbed Mount Cook and Mount Everest. Here he talks about drawing on his life experiences to help inform his design philosophy, his undiminished desire to tinker with other people's games, and how forums and bulletin boards can sometimes offer surprisingly profound revelations. He begins by talking about how the games he plays inspire him to create, and to what extent he feels he is influenced by them. Uh, I would say absolutely, completely, probably almost 100% uh, influenced. I mean, for example, I literally just finished the last sort of week or so uh, making mods for Stellaris, uh, Paradox's space screen strategy game. And I guess, so, so part of the influence isn't just looking at the game and playing the game. I find I get a lot of influence from looking at the game and learning how it was made as well. Um, and I think so. I, so I think it, you know it's not just it's not just looking at the setting or this has an interesting story, but but also how how was it made? What were the design decisions that were made? Like a game that had a huge influence on me recently was Tyne and Sylvester's uh, RimWorld, uh, and his as he calls it elastic failure, and how how he plays with that and how he utilizes that. Uh, to, to create a really interesting experience. And I think a lot of people look at the game and say it's like Dwarf Fortress, but I, I think it's so much more, and it's, it's quite different in many ways, at least in terms of how I've played it. That desire to tinker with other games and to create mods, uh, do you think that's part of you as a designer um, that, that will never leave you? I, I don't think so. People always said it would. Um, I remember when I got my first video game job, which was a long time before Daisy. Uh, people said, you know, it'll, it'll change. But if anything, it just added fuel to the flame. Uh, suddenly I had people who, you know, it might have taken me years to figure out how to use something like I self-taught myself 3DS Max and stuff like that. It was very difficult. But suddenly I was around people who knew all these tips and tricks and could tell me tell me things. So I, I think a part of it is if you look at, at DayZ, say, and what worked, and I think we discussed this um, with the book, although it was was a long time ago, uh, was DayZ was a product in many ways of the constraints that were given. 
so it was looking at the constraints of the armor engine and saying, what can we do? What's underutilized? You know, the map's underutilized. You do tiny little things. How can we make that all utilized? And I think uh, in that sense, modding and looking at other people's games has forced me not only to look at uh, different ways of solving problems maybe than, than I would have approached, but also uh, different tools. So, and modding with Stellaris, finally, after all these years, it's forced me, because a lot of their export tools only work with Maya, it's forced me to learn uh, Maya. So, so I find that by looking at how other people do things, it, it really opens me up to maybe solutions and ways of doing things I would never have thought of myself. It doesn't sound like it's a difficult thing for you personally, but um, do you think there's a temptation for some people when they're creating games to get lost in what it is that they're creating and you know, not take time um, to look around at what else is going on in games? I, I think so. Uh, I, I think there's a couple of issues. One is I find it very difficult to work on my own. So uh, having other people... And when you have sort of a bad day, uh, you know, you tend to sometimes double down. Some people double down. Some people abandon what they're doing. And I think if you double down, sometimes you can do yourself a disservice. So I try and make sure I'm, I'm doing what I most want to do right now. So that means I only do creative work on my games when that is the thing that I most want to do in the world because I find otherwise I do quite shoddy work. So, so that means that I do end up with a fair chunk of downtime uh, which I utilize to play other games and then something in one of those other games will pique my interest and, uh, I'll, and I'll start playing it or, I'll, or maybe I'll want to know how did they do this. So the animated portraits in Solaris really fascinated me. I was like, that's a very interesting visual style uh, at, uh, and it really worked. And I was like, hmm, how do they do that? And how would you make one? And sort of reverse engineer it. And then, I mean, obviously, I, I don't necessarily know how that's going to play out into how I feel about things later on. But so that, that the whole process behind it kind of just clips into my development process. It's not like I go out and say, what are the competing products doing? It's more just a byproduct of, okay, I'm not really feeling 100% creative right now. Um, maybe this is a good time to go play something. And inevitably, I end up playing a game uh, and, and then getting inspired by it. And then it kind of goes full circle. Then I'll be like, okay, look, I've played enough games. I really want to mm. make this game now. Are the, are the mods that you create purely for kind of academic reasons or, or, or for your own um, interest? Or, or do you actually release them into the wild for people to play? I release them in the wild. So quite, I think I've got three out on Steam Workshop for Stellaris at the moment um, of varying sizes. And, and I did a whole bunch of mods for Space Engineers in the early days. Uh, you know, and a lot of the stuff that I work on, particularly modding-wise, never makes it out. Uh, even in the studio, a lot of games we work on just get cancelled, and I think that's just the—that's just what happens. I'm sure you know you're no stranger to any of that. And, and to be honest, it happens in many industries as well. Uh, you know, and, and even sure as a writer, you know, you end up with a lot of unfinished stuff, and 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 then, and then some unfinished stuff lives on in other projects. Uh, 
a really fascinating film I saw, documentary. Uh, I think it's pronounced Jodorowsky's Dune. I may have actually mentioned it with the book because uh, I think I just watched it around then. Uh, you know, his project of doing Dune ended up living on in many other uh, projects, including Alien and, and all sorts of other stuff. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, that's, I mean, that's a... I think you're right. I think that probably is a common thing. It's, it's part of the process. No, very few people start creating one thing and uh, that one thing turns out perfectly and then it's kind of left alone in isolation, never to affect anything else. So I don't think that's really how, how the process works. I think perhaps what's different for a lot of people listening to you speak or watching you do presentations is that I, don't, I think you're very honest about that and I don't know that as many other people um, talk about the fact that they are working on something and that, that, that may not then come to fruition. And I, I think that's um, it's something that I, well, I personally think it's, it's an admirable kind of part of the creative process. Other people have different ideas, and I know that you get a lot of, of flack for, for doing that and talking about things or for um, venturing into to projects or to games that you know, have the best intentions. And, that, you know, things like, well, Days Ed had a life of its own, and that kind of grew beyond you, I think, probably quite yeah. quickly. But um, also with Ion, I mean, that was another one, and, and that's something that... that do you feel that has uh, worked against you? Do you think that's kind of been to your detriment? The, the Not that these things happen, not that you know a project gets to a certain point and doesn't continue, but the fact that you are from quite an early stage, very happy and open and willing to talk about it and that that then doesn't always pan out. Is that kind of, as a bigger picture thing, do you think that's worked um, in your favour or do you think that's worked against you in the past? Well, I think, you know, you can look at, you can look at things on the sort of micro level. So you look at individual uh, pieces of it and maybe it's very tempting then to sort of try and, edit your history and say, oh, I wish I didn't do that or I wish I didn't do, that, didn't do this. But when you sort of look at it on the macro level, if, if you look at it higher, you've got to say, well, would I be where I am if um, open development wasn't a thing, if social media wasn't a thing around the time that Day, Day Z came out and, and all that? And, and the answer to me is no. So I started from there and, and a big part of uh, – the success of Daisy, and I think uh, what we're trying to do at the studio now is it's a little bit like guerrilla warfare. If you've got Rockstar and Bethesda, and they're big, and you know they have these huge production trains, and they can throw a hundred designers, you know, doing a hundred different quests. Well, well, that means that we need to be small and nimble, and maybe that means that we can pivot to areas that they can't, and we can try ideas that they couldn't, and we can weather failures that they couldn't. Uh, you know, we can try little ideas and spin them up with five people and, and drop them or, or push them here. And, and so I think uh, a, a part of that whole open development and being very open about where the development is at, it's kind of necessary. I don't think I can really function and I don't have a competitive advantage anywhere else. So mm. that sort of means I have to figure it out. And if you look at Daisy and particularly if you look at Ion, there were many mistakes made there along the way. Sometimes they seem very obvious, even at the time, um, certainly in retrospect. Mm. But that's the thing about learning lessons, you know. You, you, <laughs> 
they, they can be very obvious afterwards, uh, not so obvious at the time. And uh, yeah, so I, I think I think it's really just. I don't think I could really do any different. Um, mm. I just don't think there's really an option for me. So, so that sort of makes me just muck on and say, well, you know, let's figure this thing out. Uh, yeah. Let's let's you know figure out what were the mistakes we made with Ion. Okay, well, did we really need to go to E3? No, and and you know, we were there was a lot of pressure to do something, and there's a mm. lot of always a lot of external pressure. So I think that really, that project really made me double down and say, you know what, the development is the only thing that really matters. Uh, really, that's the only thing. And it doesn't matter what your, if you're EA or whoever, what your reputation is, people will judge you based on the game that you make. Um, so you put all the effort into making a great game. Hmm. Watching you um, on stage at Res uh, not too long ago, the presentation that you gave for Stationeers um, and the, the different aspects you talked about, the different elements, even the different uh, kind of where we are now and this is the roadmap for where we want to go, all of that felt like it had um, uh, familiar and themes in common with a lot of the stuff that I remember you talking about for for days there. And that was... And I think there's a, an element of... A, Things like hunger and thirst and disease and just the simulation of numerous survival elements is something that I think um, seems to be a common thread for you. It seems to be something that you have a a genuine interest in representing in games. And I wonder how much of that comes from from games, a bit like we've already talked about, but, but also how much of it comes from the things that you do in your life outside of games. So you're your army history and your uh, climbing mountains and kind of how much of it, you know, do you think any of it bleeds in from, from that side of your life? Yeah, I think it cuts a little deeper. I think for me, like, uh, you know, and I see this a lot when I do presentations to non-gaming audiences, uh, they, they sort of say, well, how, you know, games and, and mountaineering, these are, you know, poles apart and, you know, military and games are just completely different because I guess to a lot of people, when they see a kid or something sitting playing a computer, they see it as a very sedentary thing, you know, like watching the television. Hmm. But, but for me, it's completely different. Um, and, and I see, uh, you know, I see computer games and, and you know, climbing and exploring and that. Certainly the computer games I, I play, very similar. Uh, for me, playing a lot, a lot of the computer games I do, there, it's like exploring your imagination, and you know, and Minecraft is a is a great example to use there. You're really exploring your anim, uh, your imagination, and that's why I really like playing games that I can role play in, uh, games that allow me to do stuff. Um, but but I feel like it's almost like the you know plot of the Matrix that whole uh, you know they tried the. Uh, computers tried to, you know, make a really beautiful environment mm. utopia, and people rejected it. It's kind of the same thing for me. If there's not a threat there, I think I just have that natural inclination, that you know, that, uh, that excitement and that tension around survival. Then I'm just not compelled to play it. So I, I think it's a mar- it's actually a marrying up of all of them. Uh, I enjoy the experiences that you get in real life. Uh, but then I seek out similar but slightly different experiences, maybe from different angles in, uh, in video games, and particularly with my friends. So, so multiplayer is a very strong element of that. Hmm. And is that that's something that, um, I mean, again, it, 
are you playing the same kinds of games? So sort of an obvious example is something like Don't Starve Together, that kind of multiplayer take on survival. Are you still interested in playing the, the same kinds of games when you play multiplayer, or is, is the multiplayer part of that experience the, the, uh, the, the overriding thing, the more important um, factor? I guess, I guess I definitely gravitate towards those, you know, open-world, survival-ish, uh, game. So I do feel like survival uh, now doesn't mean what I think it is, mm. uh, and it's just kind of a few mechanics that are sort of tacked in, mm. uh, and, you know, there's a couple of sort of cores to survival, like for me, permadeath and things like that, that, that really are just pillars of it, and, and without that, I'm, I'm just, you know, not super interested. And, you know, we've seen that with open world games as well. It's very easy to describe something as an open world game, but, but you know, is it really? And, see, so, yeah, I think I definitely do gravitate towards, you know, that sort of hardcore survival element. I guess I'm always looking for the same kind of thing. One of the biggest recent influences I have is that free game, which inspired Ion and then later Station Air, Space Station 13. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that left a huge impact on on me, and I think I've I've spent a lot of time trying to explore what is that game, how do you make that game, and and I guess what makes it tick. Hmm. And so that's yeah, I mean you you definitely you've talked about that um, certainly in relation to to stationers, and and that's again that's something that you don't uh, you don't shy away from. Um, it's clearly a game that affected you in a in a big way is it do you think there's way do you think that's possible for you to uh are you aware of taking any inspiration or from liking something that a game has done um perhaps to the extent that you you have liked space station 13 but without without actually enjoying the game itself like is there sort of design choices or or elements of it, mechanics of it that you are intrigued by and think, oh, that's really cool, how did that? How does that work? But the actual game itself, and you don't need to name the games in this instance, but, you know, has there been sort of instances where that's been the case of, well, I didn't really enjoy the game as a whole, but this particular thing I thought was, was really cool? Yeah, and I think, I think part of it is more, I often play games sort of on the periphery of what I'd find interesting, uh, but I might play them in a, in a way that's completely different from what's intended. A good example would be the latest um, GTA. Uh, I've never played the single player at all, but the hilarious thing is they actually force you to briefly play the single player simply because I wanted to play the multiplayer. And, uh, you know, I played, a, I played an awful lot of, of it in multiplayer. Um, didn't necessarily enjoy it all the time. Um, definitely had some problems with it. But it was a fun and enjoyable experience. and definitely had a lot of learning lessons in it for me. Um, uh, and so, yeah, so I definitely, I do find that they, they tend to happen a little bit more by accident. I'll get intrigued by a game. I'll buy the game. Um, you know, you've got to, you're committed after a certain point, and so you sort of want to get some entertainment out of it, and you just sort of uh, muddle through it. And I do find that sometimes I end up making the game play itself in the way that I'm interested in. Uh, and, and yeah, and, and so I think that's sort of along the lines of what you're talking about. A good example would be Factorio. I, I uh, figured out how to do some spawn settings that end up what I call Mad Max, so making uh, oil very rare but, you know, quite uh, significant quantities of it. And, mm. and I think... Uh, and, and the way we set the spawn settings when we tend to play that multiplayer is very much not in the way that they're intending Factorio to be played. Uh, but I kind of like that, and I like the idea of, 
game designers presenting you potentially unsolvable problems because it gives you that sense of exploring. Mm. Uh, I, I don't like over over design and, and video games that I play. Uh, and I guess I, when I make a game, I want it to be something that I'll play a lot of too. Uh, and, and that's why I like you know multiplayer and, and maybe not so much narrative games. Mm. Is that something that's um, is that something that then affects the way that you make games in terms of providing an experience, kind of an ongoing experience, more so than something that has a well-defined beginning, middle, and end? Yeah, I guess that's perhaps one of the most frustrating aspects of sometimes talking to the the public. I guess is that. Uh, you know, this obsession with, uh, with people, say, hating on early access and, and stuff like that. For me, uh, when I make a game, I really like it if, if we make a game and then keep developing it, at least for as long as it's relevant and interesting. There is a natural point and you're, you're like, okay, maybe we, we shouldn't do any more. Uh, look, a great example for me is Crusader Kings 2. I play a lot of Crusader Kings 2. And they're still releasing content. They're still releasing patches. There was a patch just the other week. Uh, and and that, that to me, you know, people call it game as a service and stuff like that. I think some people in the, in the gaming community have this obsession about, well, when is it finished? And I guess that makes sense for a narrative game or even a game like Skyrim. But for many multiplayer games in that, really, it's kind of an ongoing process. And... And it's very fun as a game developer when you've got people playing the game and you're releasing new content. And I think Ark has been doing that well, at least on the content front. Uh, you know, constantly releasing uh, new dinosaurs and, and uh, I might not necessarily agree with some of the content. You know, it's not very survival focused anymore. But uh, there's certainly no doubting that they've, they've been doing a fantastic job at releasing content. Hmm. That's those survival elements that you hold to be key. Um, how does that affect? I'm kind of aware that there can be things that you, as a designer, or one as a designer, thinks. Yeah, this is kind of one of my key um, pillars, and this is something that I believe a survival game or whatever game it might be that you're making, a roguelike or an open world game. It has to have this in order to be defined as that thing. But the, when you look around, it may have started like that. The genre may have started like that, but it's kind of that, for whatever reason, has fallen out of fashion. How much would you allow that, kind of the fashions of, of games, how much would you allow that to play a part in the games that you're designing? And how much do you say, well, I, kind of, I don't care if permadeath isn't uh, as popular as it once was. That, to me, is an important thing. I'm going to put it in. Like, I guess, how much do you allow the, the, sort of the external influences to affect what you're doing over what you believe as a designer? Uh, I think the process that works best for me is quite a collaborative one, and that's sort of a mixture of things. Part of it's figuring out what's really important to you, and this was a mistake I made several times, losing... Uh, losing this, but I, I think I've since sort of learned that this is really important. So when you're making something, you need, uh, for me, I, I say to myself, what's the stuff that's really important about this for me? And these are pillars, and, and these are probably things that I'm never really going to change my mind on. Uh, and so I make that very clear in my mind, what do I think? Well, what is the approach to making this that I think is just super important? And then pretty much everything else is up for discussion, and so that's why... 
I, I really like that collaborative development, sometimes almost argumentative, certainly internally and maybe even externally. And that's why I think for me having a direct conduit to the community is so important because so many of my ideas are terrible and, and I need to sift through and think what are the good ones and what are the ones that work. And so, yeah, so I think that's, that's been a really, um, a really key part of, of the whole process. Mm. But so, in that, I mean, in that example, if, if one of those pillars that you, you've decided on and you've set your mind to, um, if that comes up as something through things like the AMAs that you do on, on Reddit and, and also discussing internally at the studio, if that comes up as something that people are saying to you, you know, the over, overriding response to it is, well, we don't like it because we don't think it works because of this. It, it's those instances when you're kind of pushed. How how do you then? Uh, is it will you then still say, well, no, look, you know, trust me. In the long run, I genuinely believe this is going to work out for the best. Or, or would you then sort of acquiesce and say, well, okay, it seems that although I think this is a great idea, people's, other people's responses to it aren't as aren't as good. So I'll I'll change that. Kind of where I, I guess that changes from one thing to the next, one um, specific element to the next, but. What? Do, where do you think? Which way do you think you would go in that sort of situation? And I'm sure you've had that sort of situation before. But kind of, how does that play out? Well, I think sometimes the things that hurt most are things because they're true and you don't like them. Uh, and that's something that's really good about the internet. It's something I've always liked about places that people normally think of as terrible, like 4chan. It's kind of the best and worst of human. Uh, like behaviours and imagination all mixed into one. And it's funny how often you find that. Uh, you, know, you can find the most profound comments you'll read uh, on a completely anonymous bulletin board, but you can also find a, a whole bunch of just rubbish. And, and so I think that uh, sometimes thrusting yourself into that furnace of community feedback and, and uh, people saying, you know, you should do this or we don't like that, I think it kind of tempers you, and it tempers your your game idea, sort of like you know making a steel sword. You sort of have to expose your idea to a significant level of criticism to help you sort of sift out, or at least for me, to sift out what's good and what do you really care about. And I think it's sort of more of a general idea, though. But you have to. For me, you know, it's figuring out what is really important, what is the vision, and then holding on to that. It's very easy to lose that vision, and I think there was a while in Daisy, uh, and perhaps, you know, with standalone, I wouldn't say pandering to the community, but it was very easy to get obsessed over things. So I was obsessed about hacking, and and Daisy was popular not because of the hacking, but um, it also wasn't un popular <laughs> so so uh, you know at its core it was that it was the survival mechanics it was stealth mechanics and, and zombies and, and all these other things added in and a lot of those got lost along the way while we tried to deal with hacking efforts so i think yeah figuring out those pillars and, and i don't know i don't have a magic bullet I, I think it's more of an ongoing process it's a, it's a it's a constant goal rather than something that you master at least for mm. me uh, and, and that's why that community involvement and also having people on the development team who stand up and, you know, and argue a point um, is so important. Well, 
welcome to the Indie by Design podcast Halftime Interlude. If you're interested in gaining more insight into game design and game designers, be sure to check out Independent by Design, Art and Stories of Indie Game Creation. This hardback book written by us, Stace Harmon and John Robertson, gives a peek behind the scenes of game design through original interview-based written content alongside pages of compelling artwork, concept sketches and design documents. The book features the likes of Subset Games, creators of FTL, Jessica Curry, BAFTA award-winning composer and co-founder of The Chinese Room, and independent publisher Devolver Digital, alongside many more. Go to IndieByDesign.net to get your copy. On our website, you'll also find written editorial content to enjoy, and more episodes of the Indie by Design podcast. You can find us on Twitter, where we tweet as Indie by Design, and on Facebook.com forward slash Independent by Design. If you like what we're doing and have time to leave us a short review on iTunes or your podcast platform of choice, that would be lovely. On to the second part of our discussion with Dean Hall now, and we pick up the conversation with Dean explaining how both internal discussion at the studio and external conversations with the game community can help crystallise an idea and force him to re-examine assumptions. I think that tempering process for me is more about sifting through what are the assumptions we've made. And those are a big one, like what assumptions do we make about what would make this fun? Uh, and you can find out really interesting ideas about those assumptions. Uh, like we found out with DayZ uh, when uh, we, we wanted to put out experimental builds and we realized we couldn't do automated patch notes and we thought that would be a bad thing. But what it ended up doing was creating a whole cottage industry of streamers and YouTubers who wanted to play the latest experimental and then go out and tell everyone what was in the new update. And you see this with quite a few games. And so there's all these unintended consequences come out from you know putting your game and your idea in the fire of the community. Uh, and already with Stationeers in the, in the forums and, and, and on Reddit and that, there's been some fantastic fantastic ideas that we didn't think of. And it's still so early in the process that we can actually change direction. I I think this is the point that people completely misunderstand with early access and all that. It's not really about the money. It's about uh, being able to pivot parts uh, or even the whole game at, at that early stage while it's in the fire, while it's in with the community. Because, you know, to use the solid analogy, once you take it out, that's it. Mm. You know, mm. you're, you're not changing that. You're, you're building a new sword. And, and that really is how it used to work with games. You know, you'd, you'd work on a game, and, and contrary to what you read on the internet, I, I've worked on many other games. And, you know, I was Speed Racer. We worked on Speed Racer, and we were like, uh, you know, Warner Brothers were very happy with it, and they were super excited because they thought the movie was going to be huge. And the movie tanked. And, you know, Speed Racer 2 was lined up. So, you know, all the ideas and all the lessons we had about where to pivot and where to take it were wrapped up in the sequel that never happened. And that was basically how games were made for a long time. And I think early access uh, allows you to, to put your game in, in the fire and, uh, and, then, and then change it while you still can. Mm. That's, I mean, I, I can completely understand that that is how early access perhaps is viewed from a development and a developer's standpoint and a designer's standpoint and perhaps should be viewed by the wider audience. But I can also appreciate that for some people it, it is about the money in terms of somebody who's who's paid that money. And I know that's not the point that you were making there, but the, somebody who's paid their 20, 25 US dollars to gain access to something that they're very excited 
to play, and that's completely their choice, absolutely. Like they, they're being told up front, this is not a finished game. But there are certain, I guess there are certain expectations because the bar gets raised, and I think we're we're used to seeing like with games, once uh, once something has happened in a particular genre, uh, that then becomes sometimes the the bar against which to measure things. And I think the same has happened a bit with early access, that certain titles come out and do really well, not in ter- just in terms of numbers, but in terms of how far along they might be in the process, in the development process. They come out, they set a bar at a certain level, and, and people then fall into this trap of thinking, well, I played that early access game, that was at X level, X percentage level. Um, I'm kind of assuming that every early access game is, is going to be the same. To that end, it's a very long-winded way of saying, to that end, do you think the early access process itself or the the framework in which early access games are presented could do with some tweaking to be able to, for it to be more kind of granular? So you're not just saying that this isn't a finished game, that you have to actually set certain, I don't know what it might be, metrics or sliders or whatever it is to say, you know, the sound is 20% complete and the level design is 15% complete. Do you think, would that help help people's expectations in any way or would that just become really messy and unmanageable? Yeah, I guess to to frame what I was saying, I was talking about, uh, I was talking the good parts of early access. Obviously, mm. I think for it's worth clarifying for for many people, uh, often out of necessity, they're going into early access with their game because they have to, because mm. development costs money, and it's either put the game in early access or the game doesn't happen at all. And, and it's very easy from the sidelines to turn around and say, oh, well, that game just shouldn't have come out then. But this is things that people have spent years, you know, sometimes many years working mm. on. Uh, and it's in many cases it's kind of like when a publisher pushes a developer and says you need to release the game and, and the game comes out and, and people are unhappy with it mm. I, I think basically you're just seeing that situation that's basically entirely around money uh, getting shifted from uh, from uh, traditional publishing to, to early access in terms of changing early access I mean any, any change you make to a sort of free creative system like that is going to involve compromises. So every time you put a rule or uh, some attach some kind of metric, you're going to potentially be excluding something good and you might be excluding something bad as well. Mm. So I'm not really too sure uh, what you do there because uh, – who who watches the watcher then? And I think you know Microsoft implemented a pretty good system with uh, you know you don't pay for the early access game on the Xbox for the first two hours, and then Steam came at it from another angle, which is you know you can refund the game uh, if you haven't played it more than two hours, and, and they're really just two sides of the same coin, and, and I think that goes a long way. Uh, and I also I also think it's not fair enough. Uh, to say, oh well, people were warned. You know, it's like you buy Daisy. We put, in, we we changed. You know, we right from the start we had our summary as a massive warning. Hey, it's kind of like you you can't really tell people, hey, don't speed, and then you know if someone crashes on a bad corner. You say, oh well, we told you not to speed. You know, you make the road safer, right? Like we we can't just assume that that people are going to understand because people naturally get excited about a game and they want to play it. I think a lot of one metric that I really like that I'd like to see a lot more of is the review system, although it, 
it can be bad and good. You see a lot of people brigading, uh, and I thought this was very unfair with uh, uh, No Man's Sky. Uh, mm. And I never really understood uh, the game as being this multiplayer game. I got very confused when people would start talking about it. I always saw those as maybe being uh, embellished words and, and, and excitement about the game from the developers more than being the reality. So I think mm. if you actually looked at that game from uh, without all the stuff around it, it was actually a fantastic game, groundbreaking in how it approached procedural content uh, and things like that. Uh, so it was unfortunate to see people sort of wrap up how they thought about it and uh, yeah, and negative mm. reviews on Steam. But that, that's mm. a metric that I quite like and I use it a lot myself when I'm choosing uh, to buy a game. Not just the raw metric, but what the comments are. Sometimes I'll see something that's mixed and people are complaining it's too hard or you know they don't like uh, that there's not a mm. tutorial. Those are things that attract me to a game. So <laughs> I, I won't necessarily... And, and I think the majority of consumers and the majority, majority of people in general are capable of being reasonably, uh, you know, uh, I guess constructive and, and logical in terms of reviewing a game to decide whether they should buy it. Hmm. That's um, the mention there of, of No Man's Sky and, and kind of the whole furore surrounding that. <clears throat> Excuse me. I think one of the things that it seemed from the outside was that there was an element of people take the audience gamers, I think, have been trained over the years to take things that are announced as being quite um, quite fixed. And I wonder if that's because for many years um, the people that got a lot of the press and the people that got the, the attention were the very kind of hyper-media-trained people that belonged to big studios that had huge publishers attached to them, that they only really said something when they were absolutely sure that that thing was going to happen, that that thing was going to be in the game. And that although, in specifically in No Man's Sky's case, obviously Sony were attached to that, but Hello Games were a, are a, a small independent outfit who are, are perhaps used to talking about games um, based on, some of that is based on their excitement and their visions, for the game, and, and that didn't play out. And it did, it reminded me a bit of, of, or I can see the parallels, in how you talk about games as well, and you talk about, you know, these these great things that you want to be able to do, um, and that you, you plan to do, but that, you know, sometimes things change, um, and for the better, for the worse, sometimes there's good reasons behind them, and then they're made, the decisions are made for the right reasons. But do you think the um, that kind of people only talking, and I'm talking kind of AAA level now, I guess, but people only talking when they are absolutely sure that something is going to be part of the game. Has that led people to be trained or to be to be uh, to expect a certain thing so that when things do change, there's this whole big thing of, well, look at the, what was promised two years ago and look at how the game ended up. Do you think, does that play a part in it at all, do you think? Um, yeah, so I think Definitely, and you know, and I can really see the parallels um, quite quite heavily, actually, uh, in terms of in terms of there. And I, I think I think a lot of it is about, for me, is about learning the language and, and almost sort of dividing yourself into two uh, mm. in terms of how you describe and, and how you talk about um, you know how you talk about what you're going to do because. 
for me, part of the excitement about talking about games is getting excited about the game you want to make. And mm. it's very difficult to get excited about the game and uh, as well as um, <laughs> not say things that maybe aren't going to, aren't going to come through. And, and I think, uh, yeah, and, and it is a challenge. And I know I found that I, I learned my own script kind of for rest in terms of how to caveat everything you're saying. Mm. Uh, and, and, and you know maybe uh, maybe uh, you'd have a few things that you'd kind of leave in your back pocket uh, that you wouldn't talk about that you're pretty sure will be in the game but you're not fully sure. And and it's that again, it's kind of like we were talking about early access. It's that compromise, isn't it? Um, mm. Where you're trying to compromise between uh, being able to put your ideas in that fire to figure out what's good versus uh, making people very mad when ideas you had just ended up being terrible, but they still think they're a good idea uh, or, or some things just that just aren't workable. And, and if you look at Stationeers, Stationeers is a lot of elements from Ion uh, that were cut out. And I know there are a few people that were disappointed when Stationeers were announced because they wanted the MMO elements. But if you put the MMO elements in, you force them to be a certain way, it really drives your game in a particular direction, like how do you do modding, how do you do this, how do you do that. And and so, yeah, it, it is that balance, and, and I'm not sure, I certainly don't even know whether I have a formula for addressing that, let alone uh, a definitive answer. Um, yeah. yeah, it's um, along those lines of... of being happy to talk about things, keeping some things back. You know, going back to the the days that days and uh, many, I think there were, you did many, many interviews, or people asked you for many interviews, many presentations. There was a, a whole whole host of things that were um, that you had planned that you wanted to do, and, and even when it, it went from mod to to stand alone, there were still those those kind of driving the pillars really that we were talking about earlier. Still those driving factors that you really wanted to get in there, and so I think it's fair to say that you know, not everything you had planned or that you wanted to see in DayZ happened, um, and and even still now with it being with Bohemia, a lot of those things still haven't happened. However, are you proud of what you did achieve and what you did get into the game? Yes, definitely, and I think. Uh like any big event that happens in your life, and I think it's very easy for people to not understand how big something like that happening is, and it really came out of nowhere um, as well, mm. uh, is there's a whole bunch of stuff that appears with it that you kind of have to deal with, and a lot of it you're dealing with it as you're going along. Uh, and so you kind of go full circle with it. And it's like uh, I remember when the first games that were inspired by it come out, I, I got kind of not openly mad about them, but definitely there was an internalization where I'd be like, oh, it's my idea. And even mm. Ark, you know, when I when I first played Ark, I, I was almost mad about it internally. And then I realized how stupid that was. I mean, yes, I do wish I'd made that game. Um, I would have done it differently, maybe from the survival side, but mm. it's a fantastic game. And... Uh, and you kind of get a bit uh, internally. You, eventually, I think if you're the kind of person who just sort of looks maybe on the good side of things, uh, then you're just sort of happy to have been part of a, a process. And I guess that's what mm. I sort of look on. So if I'm looking at the bits that I'm proud of, it's that. And I guess the coolest bit for me is that I know there was a moment 
when only I knew what Daisy was. You know, it was a moment when I made a folder and a directory, and uh, and you're in control of this little thing that then ripples out and affects many people in, in many different ways. And, and you kind of have to give up control with that. Mm-hmm. And, and I wrestled with that uh, through the development. And, and obviously everyone got to see that happening, like kind of reality TV. So <laughs> I think you do come full circle. And, and I think I mentioned when you were doing the book, uh, really I almost hadn't had time at that time to think mm-hmm. about a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. I, everything was happening so fast as these kind of emotions and situations would come up. I was reacting to them and I was just sort of filing everything in this big box in my brain called Daisy and, you know, never really got a chance to sort through it all to the end and, and figure out, well, what worked and what didn't and what would I do less of and what would I do more of. And, hmm. and, uh, and so I think, yeah, you know, while it's good to go back and be critical, you've also got to recognize the, the parts you are proud of. Yeah, and that's, I think... Perhaps sometimes you have to be, you have to be able to do that yourself because often, uh, in a public arena, it is easier to pick up on the negative, it seems, or it's, I don't know, maybe it's just more fun for people to, to harp on about the negative stuff than it is, is the good stuff. But that's, um, that's something that, it sounds like, I mean, you know, I think whenever I've spoken to you, and it's been a, a few times over the years, but, You've always been sounded very upbeat. You're always very positive, um, and I wonder how does that change, or not? How does it change? But how does how is that? Um, how is your kind of your your work situation enhanced by having more and more people around you now? So once upon a time, you know, I spoke to you about Days Z, and I think it was, or to my knowledge, it was just kind of you and, and Matt at that point. Um, and now this, you have a, you founded a studio. You have people working alongside you and and for you. How does that kind of uh, enhance, or how does that that change? Obviously, a lot of responsibilities come with that as well. But how does that change your sort of your your outlook on 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 game design and and I guess more more um, on a wider picture, just in terms of of your your sort of work life balance as well. How does that sort of change your your whole situation? Yeah, and I mean, I guess it's just one big thing that kind of all melds together. Uh, so our studio is like 45 people now full time um, on site, and it's many different projects. And I'm not necessarily involved with. I, I tend to mainly focus on one at a time, um, and work on one for a package, and then move on to something else. I'm really good at um, forcing a project. Uh, through a period of almost hyperactivity, because I kind of do a bit of everything, I kind of can call the uh, call the programmers on their on their lies maybe a little bit mm-hmm. or, or their reluctance because I'll be like, oh, fine, I'll just write that system. Uh, and so and so so I'm kind of good at sort of pushing something through. And one of the, one of the parts I most enjoy about a game is that lead up, that sort of three to six months to release uh, is a really exciting time because um, it's very challenging but very exciting at the same time. You're really having to make calls. Uh, And actually, that reminds me of a point I was going to say earlier, sort of semi-related, is I think one of the biggest things you need, other than even a thick skin in the games industry, is the ability to put up with things being messy. Uh, and, and many ways, and, and I think a, a striving for perfection means your game just doesn't come out or someone else's game comes out and does it better. And art 
is a great example of that. Still running a very old version of uh, Unreal, um, and you know many many bugs and and many things that just are never going to get fixed. But it's there, uh, and it's pretty playable, and it's really enjoyable. And, and so I think. Uh, it's kind of the same with me. I don't expect perfection from myself. I don't, and therefore you can't from the, from other people either. And you just got to kind of muck in. I, I know one thing I felt that we never mastered on the DayZ development was making it fun. And I remember saying this to people. I was like, if we can't make this project fun to, to be on, then mm. we're screwed. Because we'd already, the project had already made like a hundred million dollars or something ridiculous. I don't know. I'm pulling numbers out of my backside. But you know, the project had already made a heck of a lot of money, many, many tens of millions of dollars. So, so why could we make this fun? And I only really reflected on later. You know, many of them were decisions I made um, that were not making it fun to, to make. And so, and setting up this year, and, and then I guess in setting up my life in a place where I actually wanted to live um, mm. back in New Zealand meant that uh, I, I was able to have a stab at doing those things. What is what does it look like? And that's something I, I have to keep reminding people at the studio. Like, if we're not making this fun to make games, then we, frankly, we don't deserve to enjoy ourselves, you know. Uh, and and we've got to look at what are those things that make it fun. Mm. Does does in that particular instance does does the part of what makes it not fun uh, is it that is it the, the success and the or and to, sort of looking ahead, do you feel a pressure uh, because this is you know when when people hear about Dean Hall and, and Rocketworks, of course, but people, you know, very fixated on individual kind of rock star developers, I think. People hear that Dean Hall is making a game. There's a level of anticipation, a level of, of, uh, of expectation, maybe, or just, just sort of hope of what it might be. It, does that, and previously in the past with, with Days, just the, the sheer enormity of it, is that part of what makes it not fun, or does that does that not really affect you? Does that kind of that that's not something that really plays plays into your mindset? Oh, it did, and and I was scared about it, and, and I because I think you get you get swept away when when you have mm. something go viral, um, you get swept away in it, and then you get terrified because you don't want to lose it. So suddenly you've adapted. You've adapted to the situation you've got. You know, so, someone gives you $2 million or $5 million. You're going to be excited and elated for a while, but eventually you're just going to adapt to it, and and, mm. and your motivations are going to be completely different. Uh, and and so the same thing sort of happened, I guess, with DayZ is, you know, and that's where I went through a period of, you know, pandering to the community and, and making mistakes and doing this and doing that. But, but I think I came full circle, and I think actually modding helped a lot there, you know, the first some of the little mods and little things I'd release uh, weren't necessarily that big, and then I realised that was okay and it didn't matter, mm. and that actually I was having a heck of a lot of fun. And, and you know what? And this was kind of why I made Daisy for a start. You know, it was made for a few people, and and so I guess I I fell in love again with the process rather than the result, uh, and that I think was important. And I think once that happened. Uh, and, and once I went through that, and you know things like Ion and, and stuff like that, and then Station Ears, I think suddenly I realised, you know what, this is going to be okay, and, and I'm okay with this, and, and I enjoy this, and I can just enjoy the process. It's kind of like uh, with the climbing and mountaineering I do. For a while, when I was younger, I was taking photos and putting them on 
uh, you know, social media and stuff like that. But that's what it became about. I would go mm. do something to do that. And I think this is a huge mistake people make in general, uh, is it becomes what they're doing and what they're showing rather than the actual process. So I made a conscious uh, decision on Everest to take very few photos, really. I didn't actually have that many photos because I just wanted to enjoy the experience. And I think for me with making video games, it's the same thing. It's why um, luckily at the studio people don't look at me sideways. But, you know, over the, over the last few days I decided, you know what, I'm going to learn Maya. It's not like I need to put it on my CV and I'm only doing it to make this mod for Stellaris. And, and, and on the face of it, you look at it and you're like, what possible... Um, positive does this have for me? But but I'm just enjoying the process. I'm enjoying, although you know I do curse Meyer occasionally. But you know, and learning a new software and and learning how to make an asset for someone else's game. Uh, for me, I just find something really enjoyable in that. And I've, I've seen me wandered off your point, but I feel like I've kept the spirit of your point. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's as is probably ever the case, Dean. I think that's 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 a fair. A fair assessment, but no, I think that's something I that's interesting to hear that idea of um, of doing things for yourself, and it does it brings it back to a, an oft repeated mantra that any developer, really, you know, whatever kind of um, or even developers or authors or artists or, or whoever it might be, often you do set out to make something that for yourself and that you can enjoy, and if because if you can't, it becomes a chore to work on, and it's. It, I guess you can become cynical. You know, if I'm writing something that I don't really enjoy or believe in, then it, it just feels like I'm doing it, you know, for a, the end result and, and nothing more. That um, that idea of the whole process being being fun is that again for you? Is that something that has changed? Because I mean, starting a studio, I imagine, um, is exciting and fun. But it, but it has a lot of other stuff that goes with it that must be not so fun, um, even just in terms of the, you know, the, the logistics of, of it all. Um, so do you, like, how, how involved do you try to make yourself in, in every bit of, of the establishing of that studio, in every bit of what that studio is doing, and how much is it kind of, you stepping back and saying, well, I trust in the people that I surround myself with um, and I, I don't need to kind of to micromanage. Um, that's not to say that if you are if you are micromanaging that you don't trust those people. But for, as a as a personal sort of comfort, a personal comfort level, how comfortable are you with kind of just saying, well, yeah, I trust these people to 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 do what I've set out or to have their own ideas or, or you know how much is there a compulsion for you to get involved in in the nitty-gritty of it well i think if if you read the internet uh the internet pretty much i think blames me for everything uh but but that's definitely not true i think i think uh uh people give me far more credit uh in terms of blaming me for stuff than uh than i can take um so so i've really focused on uh on more the culture really i just wanted a place so there's a, there's you know there's some uh there's one project we're working on that's not even my idea it's not even a game that i'd make uh 
and and I almost feel at times there's very little I can provide in terms of helping it out other than sort of some production advice. Uh, and uh, previously, uh, I'd had businesses that had failed and stuff, so I, I knew a lot about setting up a business, and I studied um, law and commerce, so um, so I was familiar with those. But but I yeah I I find I I learnt, and it wasn't something I naturally had, but I, I learnt the awesomeness of delegation uh, and and trusting people. Uh, and how powerful that can be. Uh, and, and, and part of that comes back to my point earlier. For me, I figure out these are the stuff that I really care about. And these are the stuff, these are the things that I am going to micromanage. Maybe it's about a game. These are the things that I'm very hot on and I want to know if we're screwing with that. And, and I think the battle is making sure that you're really clear about what those are with other people. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, so, so managing the expectations. So nine times out of ten, I won't care what someone does, uh, with something. Uh, uh, but, but uh, they know that there's, there's one area that, that's very important, I think, cuts to the crux of the game. And, and I think that makes it tolerable then, because you're not got someone who's constantly saying, well, you have to do this or that. But they know that if, um, if that I'm very particular on this particular piece, it's because, uh, I believe there's a reason for it. Uh, and I think that's, that strikes a good balance between, you know, you don't just want to let anybody do anything at all. Uh, otherwise, you get a very incohesive, sort of uncohesive, I don't know what the word there is, um, uh, result. You know, you want, you want something heading in a direction towards a vision without making people's workdays suck because they're just getting told what to do all the time. For more on games and game creators, visit IndieByDesign.net, follow IndieByDesign on Twitter, or drop by Facebook.com forward slash IndependentByDesign. IndieByDesign podcast episodes are released every Wednesday. Our next episode will be available on Wednesday 3rd of May. The music used in this episode is owned and provided by Ben Prunty.